Let me direct your attention to the Word of God as it's found, first of all, in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of God. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Zin, traveling from places to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, that is grumbling and testing, because the Israelites quarreled because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then in the New Testament, if you would turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were baptized all into Moses in the cloud in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up and to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. May God God add his blessing to the reading uh, of his word. Now, as I read the sermon text for this morning, especially from Exodus 17, you might have experienced a little bit of deja vu all over again. Uh, I would hope it had a bit of a familiar ring because it's part of the same text that Pastor Tony Miles preached on so wonderfully uh, last uh, Sunday morning. 
This is intentional. I did this intentionally. Last weekend, I was asked whether I might be willing to preach and lead communion this Sunday on fairly short notice. I said I would be happy to do so, but then followed up with a phone call to ask uh, Pastor Tony if he was intending to return to Exodus 17 in a series or go on to Exodus 18 uh, next week. Uh, He's told me that he was planning to go on to Exodus 18. I then asked him if he he would mind if I led the congregation in a second look at Exodus 17 in light of Paul's comments on 1 Corinthians 10 as part of a communion uh, sermon because that one two uh, punch, the relationship between these two texts is of great importance and value for understanding what we are doing in the sacraments and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He encouraged me, go ahead, go ahead, and it's very cheerfully and, and, uh, uh, and openly. And so here I am uh, this morning. This morning I'd like to take a second look at Exodus 17, 1 through 7, in light of the remarkable text found in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14 that I read to you a moment ago. What makes this text so remarkable? Uh, it is the way that Paul applies sacramental language of the New Testament to the Old Testament people of God. In verse 2, he says that the Old Testament people of God were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. In verses 3 and 4, he speaks of how they partook of communion, that they all ate the same spiritual food, they all drank the same spiritual drink. And that spiritual nourishment is said to have come from the rock which accompanied them or followed them, and that rock was Christ. That, of course, forms a direct and amazing connection to Exodus 17, which speaks of Moses striking the rock so that water might be provided to God's people. We're going to be looking back at that passage in greater detail in a moment. But for now, I would direct your attention to Paul's astonishing assertion that the Old Testament people of God have undergone sacramental experiences and blessings parallel to that of New Testament believers. And I want to explore with you why he views that as important for us and for our understanding of the nature and significance of the New Testament sacraments, particularly the one that we are observing this day, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So let's consider, first of all, the sacramental experiences of the Old Testament people of God uh, as we consider the baptism of the people of God uh, in the book of Exodus and in Exodus chapter 17. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea, that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, if you understand this verse, I think you gain a, a little bit better appreciation for the meaning and mode of baptism uh, as a sacrament. Uh, many of my Baptist friends, and I want to reassure uh, all of you out there, I do have many Baptist friends, okay? So uh, um, uh, um, many of my Baptist friends argue that to baptize means to immerse. And sometimes they point to this text in support of their point, uh, that if you're going to be truly baptized, it should be through the mode of immersion, of being brought underneath uh, the water. And they point out that, look, the children of Israel were immersed in the cloud and the sea. Now, that's an interesting observation. And uh, um, 
But there's a difficulty with it, and the difficulty is that Paul doesn't say they were baptized into the water or into the sea. He says they were baptized into Moses. Contrary to the teaching of my Baptist friends, the root meaning of baptism is not to immerse, but it is to merse or to merge. By being baptized into Moses, the Israelites were being joined to the mediator of the Old Covenant, that is Moses. And as we are baptized in the New Testament, we are baptized into Christ and therefore joined to the mediator of the New Covenant, which is Jesus. Okay. The instrument of both baptisms is the same, agreeable, that's true, it's water, the point's the same. But the point is not that they were immersed, the point is by the cloud and the sea, the people are separated from Egypt, <clears throat> they are distinguished uh, from the world, and they are joined uh, to Moses. Likewise, in New Testament baptism, it is a sign of separation uh, from ourselves and the world and of our being united or joined uh, to Jesus. Now, Paul goes on to speak about the communion of Old Testament believers. Not only that they were baptized, but they also sort of observed a kind of Lord's Supper. Paul goes on to say that the people of God shared in a communion-like experience, just like they shared in a baptism-like experience. They all ate from the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. And to what Paul is referring, what is the communion experience of the Old Testament? Well, we're given a hint in, in, chapter, in verse 4, uh, section, the second half of verse 4, 4b. For they drank from the rock which accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. They drank from the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, this makes reference to two occurrences in the book of Exodus in which God gives water out of the hard rock. In Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, that we read a moment ago, also uh, Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13, which occurs later at a different time, in a different place, in a different setting. Um, uh, I'll, I'll mention that briefly later on, but I want us to focus on the first, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. So we've talked a little bit about the sacramental experiences of the Old Testament people of God. Now we want to take a little bit of a background exposition of Exodus 17 and how the rock that followed them was Christ. In Exodus 17, 1 through 7, we have the account of Israel putting the Lord to the test at Horeb in what later became called Massa, testing, and Meribah, quarreling, because as we saw last week, there they quarreled with God and they put the Lord uh, to the test. In this situation, it begins, uh, this text begins with an accusation of the people. Uh, the Israelites are camped at Rephidim approximately two and a half months after the time of the Exodus coming out of Egypt. And the whole time since the time of the Exodus is a time of grumbling. God delivered them at the Red Sea, Exodus 15, yet soon afterward they grumbled against the Lord because of the waters of Marah were bitter in Exodus chapter 15, 23, 24. And Marah means bitter. The, the waters of bitterness. There God delivered them and gave them a promise that if they would be obedient to him and trust him, he would not subject them to the judgments he had measured out to the Egyptians for their unbelief. Instead, he would be their God. He would provide for them, for I, the Lord, am your healer. 
uh, Exodus 15:25b to 26. Despite that promise, the people complained once more to God uh, further down the road, this time because of lack of food in Exodus chapter 16. Again, God graciously provides for them by giving them manna. Now as the people come to Rephidim, they find that there is no water for them to drink. And in their usual form, they grumble against Moses and against God. Verse 3b. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us, to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Now there's no sugarcoating uh, their accusation. They're accusing God and Moses of premeditated murder. That this is the charge is reinforced by Moses' cry to God, verse 4, that the people were about to stone him. <clears throat> the appropriate fate for one who is guilty of murder. So the accusation is made, and then what follows, the accusation is tried. The accusation is tried. God gives Moses specific instructions commanding that the accusation be brought to trial. Verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. What's happening here? God is calling for a solemn assembly. He's calling for a convocation. And that this is an official event is shown by the presence of the elders with Moses. This is a solemn and formal convocation and procession. And it is punctuated um, uh, with instructions that Moses is to carry the rod of judgment uh, uh, from which uh, uh, he had, uh, had cursed uh, the Egyptians and had brought judgment upon the Nile. The people knew only too well about this rod. Okay. Uh, and when Moses waved it about, Amazing things had happened, including the plagues on Egypt, including the judgment on Egypt in the Red Sea. So when solemn procession begins, the elders go into solemn procession, and Moses has the rod of judgment. They got their people's attention. Um, uh, now, don't miss the drama of the text here. The accused is God. The accusation is premeditated murder. And the accusers are the people of God. But who is guilty? Well, certainly not God. He has already been more than patient with Israel and his unbelief. He has already delivered them from the land of Egypt and the house of bondage. Certainly not Moses, for he had not only he had only been doing what God had instructed him to do uh, as the mediator of the old covenant. No, it's the people who are guilty. For they have violated the covenant of their Lord, their healer, by not trusting him to provide for them and by bringing false charges against the Lord. So you have the accusation, you have the trial, and then you also have the execution of judgment. What does the Lord command Moses to do? Does he summon him to stretch out the rod of judgment and to smite the Israelites 
with all the plagues of Egypt? No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives Moses the command found in verse 6. I will stand there before you on or upon the rock at Horeb. And you will strike the rock. And water will come out of it for the people to drink. Now, do you see the amazing thing that is happening here? The people of God are guilty. But God takes upon himself the rod of judgment. He takes upon himself the punishment due the people for their sin. Moses strikes God, as it were, with the rod of judgment, with the elders of Israel as witness, showing that satisfaction for judgment has occurred. And once again, God makes provision for the people, this time by having water come out of the rock. Now, if you understand that, you can begin to appreciate why the Apostle Paul draws a parallel between this event and communion. This passage witnesses to the necessity of God's bearing judgment before grace can be given. It witnesses to the necessity of God's bearing judgment before grace can be given. The blessings of the people come only because God has taken the judgment of their sins upon himself. And in so doing, he has again distinguished the people from the rest of the world. Now, such an understanding also explains why Moses striking the rock the second time was so serious an offense. Time is short this morning, so I'm not going to do an exposition. But in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13, the people again grumble. This is later on at a different place. Um, uh, Moses instructed by God to speak to the rock that water may flow. But Moses is angry. Okay. He cries out, listen, you rebels. Must we uh, bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raises his arm and he strikes the rock twice. And water gushes out. The people are provided for. But Moses is not permitted to enter into the land because he did not honor the Lord uh, before the people. The rock had already been struck. Uh, the once and for all judgment had been, uh, been taken. Now Moses was not to strike the rock again, but to speak to it, to speak to the rock for provision for the people. We're now able to understand, I think, the blessings of sacramental observance. This is the third section here if you're trying to generate some kind of an outline. I didn't print an outline for you this morning. I apologize for that. But but the blessings of sacramental observance and the remembrance of God's grace. The Lord's Supper witnesses to the necessity of God in the person of his Son bearing divine judgment for our sin. That's what this is all about. That's what we remember, the Lord's death until he comes. And the blessing that comes to us comes because God has been willing to do that, because Jesus has been willing to do that. And it is this blessing which distinguishes us from the world. But the sacraments are also an outward sign of what ought to be the inward spiritual reality of the people of God. 
And it is from this that Paul draws his applications. Yes, the Old Testament saints experienced communion. They experienced sacramental blessings. But it's not simply to be an outward observance, it's to be an inward reality. Uh, they are to exercise faith. Uh, the Old Testament people of God had outwardly participated in sacramental experience. They were marked as separate from the world by their deliverance from the Red Sea. They shared in the sign of their deliverance from the judgment of God by eating manna and drinking from the rock. But Paul has a hard word here. But though they had experienced these things, they'd been baptized. They'd had communion. They had the Lord's Supper. But although they had experienced these things, with most of them, God was not pleased and their bodies were scattered over the desert, verse 5. Why? Were there no blessings in the sacraments that they've experienced? Absolutely. But it wasn't the outward uh, involvement, but the inward reality that was more important. These sacramental blessings were not met with faith in those who received them. Instead, their hearts were filled with other things for which they bore the judgment of God on numerous occasions. And Paul walks through them. Verse 7, they were filled with idolatry, a reference to the golden calf incident. Uh, when God goes up the, uh, Moses goes up the mountain with God, uh, uh, the Israelites become a little anxious about this invisible God. They want a God that they can see and touch. And so uh, they ask Aaron to uh, develop a golden calf, an, an idol that they could use as an instrument for worshiping, uh, worshiping the Lord. Uh, and they were severely judged as a consequence of that. You may remember Moses comes down the mountain and he shatters uh, the Ten Commandments, the t tablets of the commandments that God had written with his own finger. Verse 8, Paul alludes the fact that they were filled with immorality. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 25. Um, uh, where the Midianites uh, um, uh, were not able to prevail militarily, but they did prevail morally by receiving the counsel of Balaam, remember that wicked, wicked prophet who encouraged them uh, to seduce uh, uh, the Israelites, and they did. Uh, and many, many fell into sin um, until, and, and until uh, the, pl the plague and the judgment was stopped uh, by, by Phineas uh, in Numbers 25. Verse 9, they were filled with dissatisfaction. Numbers 21. Uh, they complained regarding manna. And they were scourged uh, by copperhead snakes. Okay? Um, but you may recall, and Paul puts it surprisingly, amazingly in this text, that they sinned against Christ. Because what was the solution to this problem? Uh, Moses was commanded to take an image of one of the copper serpents and put it up on a post so that anyone who looked upon that post would live and be delivered from their venomous snake bites. And you may recall that Jesus himself says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so uh, the Son of Man must be lifted up and I will draw all men unto uh, myself. Verse 10, they were filled with grumbling. Number 16, this is the story of Korah's rebellion in which a clan rebelled against Moses and God, and they ended up being severely judged and destroyed. Now, Paul points to these examples, and he says to us, you know, if we've experienced such sacramental blessings, we need to avoid 
such idolatry, such immorality, such disobedience. We need to meet with the sacramental blessings with faith. Verse 6, these things occurred as example to us to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things that they did. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the age has come. Verse 12, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And verse 14, which is one verse beyond our text that we read this morning, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry, says Paul. So if we truly experience sacramental blessings, we can have confidence that God will sustain us. Uh, and as we approach these blessings in faith, um, we can have hope. And this is the point that Pastor Miles made so powerfully uh, last week in his exposition of Exodus uh, 17, in verse, um, uh, that, that, that God is with us, that God is present with us. And if the Lord had not been with us, then there would be uh, no hope for us. Paul makes the same point powerfully in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is Paul's reaffirming the lesson that we heard last week from Pastor Miles, that we are comforted in our distress because God is with us. No temptation has come unto you except that which is common to everybody. This gives hope. The trials we experience are real. They can be excruciatingly difficult. But we cannot say, you know, our situation is unique and no one has ever suffered like I've suffered. Others have had similar experiences and that gives hope. Because if others have had those experiences and gotten through them, that gives hope that we too can get through them. Uh, and of course, uh, we have the example of Jesus who was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sinning. Uh, we're not Jesus, to be sure. And yet there's hope for us uh, that temptation and sin doesn't have to define us or be the last word. Um, uh, second point, God is faithful. He will not tempt you beyond your ability to bear. Again, this brings hope. It reveals to us that our circumstances are not arbitrary or accidental. They are tailor-made. We are not where we are at any given moment by accident. As Pastor Miles pointed out last week so eloquently, God is with us in the storm. If the Lord had not been on my side, where would I be? But the Lord is with us in our circumstances and comforts us. And thirdly, with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. God is with us, and he is able to deliver. You're in the desert, have no water? God can deal with that. You're in the desert, you have no food? God can deal with that. Uh, he dealt it with the people of Israel and provided for them numerous times. But we need to trust in him uh, to stop grumbling and stop putting him uh, to the test. My friends, God is able to deliver. God is able to deliver. Uh, our situation is not accidental. We are where we are in part because God has placed us where we are and he also can deliver us. 
Many years ago, I read a book by Fran Schaefer uh, called True Spirituality, uh, a terrific little book if you're looking uh, for a, a good uh, devotional book to read or something. It's not a devotional book, but it's just an edifying book. And he made the observation <clears throat> that stunned me and, and really filled me with joy. He says, our God is an infinite personal God. As a personal God, he cares for us. But as an infinite God, um, he has unlimited resources. And, wait for it, but here it is. He says, as an infinite personal God, God can deal with each one of us as if we were the only person alive. Now think about that. Now if you're tempted to think of that God is just like us but bigger, <laughs> no, God is an entirely different kind of being. He's infinite and personal. And because of that, he can deal with us as if we were the only person alive, and he is able to deliver us in the midst of circumstance. Now, as we turn to our attention to the Lord's table, my friends, the sacramental blessings of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are very real. Now, Israel also experienced them outwardly. But those outward experiences were of no value for many not for all, but for many, because they were not accompanied uh, with, uh, with faith. The sacraments require faith. The sacraments require faith. The sacraments are not a means of grace for those who have no grace. Okay? But the good news is grace is available. And the sacraments testify to the reality of the grace that is available to us. As we approach the Lord's table this morning, we must not follow the example of the rebellious Israelites in the desert. And the good news is we don't have to. We don't have to. If you understand that the forgiveness of sins is possible only because God in the person of his Son bore the judgment for sin upon himself that we deserved, this is the source of genuine blessing and genuine hope. This is the lesson of Exodus 17 and 1 Corinthians 10. My friends, we can drink from the same spiritual food. And we can drink the same spiritual drink. For we can drink from that same spiritual rock who is always with us. And that rock is Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you that though we are a grumbling and disobedient people, um, that you have not placed the judgment that we deserve upon us, but that you have taken it upon yourself in order that provision might be made for us. As we are reminded of these things in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would um, encourage our faith, strengthen us in the promises of God, and help us to realize how you have given us this grace and you have forgiven us of our sins, uh, not simply that we might be forgiven, but that we might now be freed up uh, to declare the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into marvelous light, and that we might live before you in such a way uh, that we would honor you uh, with our lives and people might see our good works and give glory to you. 
Uh, bless us, we pray, as we move into the service of communion. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.